How many of you have noticed in our country today that there seems to be something of a, of a tendency to get outraged? Have you noticed this? Okay, it's not just me then. So have you noticed that it tends people go from zero to 100 instantaneously? And rather than being annoyed or irritated or slightly bothered, we go instantly to outraged. How weird is it that that's in a country where nearly 80% of the people claim to be Christian? That's strange. Because if we're acting like Christians, then we would demonstrate Christian behavior. Christian behavior typified by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and understanding that our minds are full of and therefore our behavior is tempered by things that are true and noble and right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, and that what's in the well comes up in the bucket. What we're thinking about, dwelling on, filled with, that's what comes out in our behavior patterns. So here's some real statistics. As it turns out, 29% of Americans, once they're polled and really asked the question, would identify themselves as born-again Christians, saying that we, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not just Christian by culture, but I'm actually a Christian person. And then among those, only 15% would agree with the basics of the Christian uh, or the biblical truth that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, Jesus is the only way to uh, peace with the Father, uh, Jesus' uh, real uh, birth, death, and resurrection, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the reality of an eternal state, and, and the responsibility for our actions, that only 15% of Americans would adhere to that truth. In that context, that makes a lot more sense. It means that 85% of the people who constitute our nation do not believe in those things and therefore behave like they don't believe in those things. And so amongst the Christians in that 30%, we have these people that are called uh, convictional Christians. And by the way, this is from a 2018 survey. There are convictional Christians in that 30%. There are congregational Christians and there are nominal Christians. And I want to define those real fast in the context of what Paul referred to as immature or those who are not capable of eating uh, spiritual food, grown-up food, and he has to feed them milk. So uh, the convictional Christians, there's convictional, congregational, and nominal. Convictional Christians are those people who really do believe in what the Bible has to say. They're serious about it. They're convicted by that. And they are regularly in attendance at church and in in life groups and in discipleship with other Christians. And that constitutes 15% of the American population. The next group are what are known as congregational, and these are the people, uh, you probably know them, maybe you're one of them and you just got to be here today, uh, but the congregational Christians are those people who, who have a belief in God and a belief in the Christian faith, and they actually identify with a particular church, and they go to that church less than 10 times a year, but they identify with a church and with a faith. And then the nominal Christians are those who would believe in the Bible, believe in Jesus, but they don't actually attend and are not committed to any body of faith. And so the nominal Christians in the United States of America made up a huge group of that 80%. And between the 80% who say they believe and they call themselves Christians, and that 15% of people who are actually committed to the church, we have this huge midsection that we're referred to as nominal Christians for many years. But if the advent of the millennial generation is coming into its maturity, in other words, post-modernity is really coming into its full form, 
those people are becoming what are known as the nuns. And so do you identify with a church? Do you identify with a body of believers? Do you identify with the Christian denomination? How would you identify uh, this, what, you know, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, community? And they would answer none. They don't answer any. They don't really identify with any group of Christians. They just kind of nebulously believe in a God. And so this is where we are in the United States today. What we've been talking about all the way through this book of 1 Corinthians is that Corinth and America are extraordinarily similar. And you might want to look at this book as First Americans. Read it as if it was written directly by Paul and Sosthenes to us in the United States of America today to come to and realize, wow, what was true then is true now. What was a problem in Corinth is a problem in the United States today. And if we're going to move past that and that 15% of the faithful is going to expand up and be a larger group, then we're going to have to be more faithful in the way that we live out our Christian convictions so that people don't see hypocrisy hypocrisy, but authenticity. And how do we get there? As Paul is talking about, he says, my brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid foods, since you were not ready for it. So a word about the scripture. All scripture is given, is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching. Actually, pull it up for you here. Is profitable for for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this verse is Paul talking to young pastor Timothy. So that man of God he's talking about is the pastor, the preacher. Preachers and pastors need to be equipped for every good work, and they find that equipping in the scriptures so that when we stand and we and we speak the truth of the scripture we don't speak our opinions we speak what scripture is teaching and what you as a churchgoer need as those 15% kind of people that gather here regularly that in this community what you need to demand of your pastor pastors is that we preach the whole counsel of the word of god faithfully and truthfully because you want grown-up food. You don't want to just go to church and hear little inspiring messages that make you feel better about yourself so you can go home and continue in your sin. You need to be convicted when you come to church. You need to walk away from here. Wait for it. You ready? You need to walk away from here uncomfortable sometimes. My hope, our, our elders' hope, our pastoral staff's hope is that what happens on Sunday is you are edified and encouraged and growing in your faith and that we leave you with things to think about, ponder about, debate about in your life groups and your study times during the rest of the week. That's what we would hope for because that's how grown-ups behave. Here's what we don't behave like Christians. We don't immediately explode to the margins of outrage anytime we disagree with somebody. So if we look around our culture and we see whether that be in politics or our cultural differences on this matter or the other, every time we disagree, what Christians ought to be demonstrating is a calmness and a patientness that wants to hear other people's points of view and love that person and engage a person you love on level ground rather than feeling like you have to scream louder, make a more dramatic case, have more friends on Facebook liking your opinion or your attack, and speak in the pejorative and the characters, what we need to do is love people and engage people as Christ did with the people who disagreed with him. You see, when Christians act like that, we act mature. And then the message that we claim to believe is a message people are going to see lived out and want to hear more of. That's maturity. And that's the call of the church. Would you agree?
Okay, so let's take a look then about what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about building on solid foundations. Christians becoming mature by building on correct teachings. And there's two topics we're going to breeze through today. The first one is building up our faith on the master builder's foundation. Okay, it's sophos architectos is the word that Paul is actually going to use. And the only reason I use those Greek words is it's really neat what they actually mean. So we'll take a look in a moment. And then secondly, human wisdom leads to foolish and unbiblical constructs, which did not pass the test of fire. And fire here is not hell. Fire here is a test as in a purifying or a testing. Have you ever seen uh, metal refined or gold refined? How do they do that? with heat, and it burns off the dross and the junk. That's the fire we're talking about here. This is not hell. So just in case you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, we're not talking about hell here. Now, this passage and what we're talking about today is a testing and a purifying time. So let's take uh, kind of a walk through this. Building on a foundation. Modern houses are built on uh, either a slab, a monolithic slab, or on a footing. You ever been involved in building before? Anybody seen it done, built your own house, or watched your neighbor's house be built? Okay, here's how this will come to fruition. If you build on a good foundation, it's square, it's level, it's done plumb, everything is right, it's quality materials, the building that's built on it has the opportunity, although not the guarantee, to be built square as well. Because if the foundation is square and you lay down the sill plate and you put in the floor joists and you build up the walls and you frame it in, you put in the trusses and, and put the roof on, by the time you go to put those, uh, the roof sheathing on, if the foundation was right and the framing was right, when you go to put the roof sheathing up there um, on the trusses, you know how it goes on? Even and straight. It's amazing. Anybody in the building trades, have you ever built that house before? Nope. Why? Because along the way, little errors happen all the way around, especially if I built it. By the time you get to the roof, somebody's going to be like, who built this? You know? Anyway. Your life is built on a foundation. You have core beliefs and values and thoughts and cultural ideas that make up your way of building your life. Okay? So over the years, your foundation is going to shape the way the rest of your life is built. So let's look at a few verses from Scripture that kind of reinforce this from the biblical writers. Isaiah said this, So this is what the sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested zone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Jesus, uh, who was himself a builder, said, Every Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house. Yet, it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, rivers rose, winds blew. And pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. You see, life is built, beliefs are built brick by brick by brick. And when the first brick is laid correctly, the next brick has the opportunity to be laid correctly as well. But if you don't do the foundation right, everything else is subject to collapse. Now, for the smart people in the room, you've already figured out where Paul is going. For the rest of you, imagine this. What if the foundation was put down incorrectly and you tried to build an expensive house on a bad foundation? What ends up happening? Everything you invest in is for naught. Because a day will come when it's going to collapse and be ruined. 
and all that you've believed and built and trusted in is gone. It will let you down. And that is incredibly frustrating. Yet it happens a lot in our culture and our society, doesn't it? So what are good foundations? What are bad? Well, let's take a look at a really neat thing Paul had to say. Paul referred to himself as Sophus Architecton. He said, and this is in verse 10. And uh, let me roll over here to verse 10. He said the following, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. A wise master builder. What Paul is saying to the people in Corinth at those times is like a sophist, who shares tremendous wisdom from the words of my mouth and my fertile mind. That's not Shannon, it's Paul saying that. So Paul is saying, as a sophist architecton, in other words, the architect builder, I'm laying a foundation that's correct. And if you'll build on this, everyone who builds on this one will not be put to shame. In 1978, Henry Isaacson designed as the architect the building that you sit in today. This was originally designed as a racquetball club and a bar upstairs. Later on, it became the Rock on 12th, right? You guys remember the Rock on 12th? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Phil, do you have any recollection of that? There's been a problem with this building from 1979 until about three years ago, Andrew. Am I about right? Three years ago, we finally solved it. You want to know what that problem was? The architect laid out a design for the foundation of this building that took in mind the fact that we're at the bottom of a hill that's made up of the Niagara Escarpment. So water flows which direction? And water always finds its own level. Well, if you build a building and you block the water so that all the water comes down and rushes up into the building, you're a moron because you should have figured out a way to make sure the water keeps going. And it turns out Henry did exactly that. He designed the footings of this building to be laid a particular way that would make sure the water kept going. But the person who laid the foundation that Henry designed, when Henry was out of town in Chicago for some sort of a thing that architects do, the the person putting them down decided they're smarter than the architect. And so instead of laying all the footings this way, he laid them all this way, right? And what that created is what we refer to as a dam. That word's been used several ways with regards to our foundation. But here's the problem. The water comes down and it hits a dam and it comes up. And it rises up. It rose up through our foundation. It came into our building. And many times over the years, this place has flooded. That didn't have to happen. Now, it wasn't until Andrew's crew figured out how to do this as real engineers, they dug down deep enough, put in the right thing to get the water to come down the hill and gave it somewhere to go, that it went away and all's good. Thank you, by the way, Andrew, for your team's handling that the last couple years. But if you just built it the way the master builder told you to, you wouldn't have had a problem. But how many of us look to the words of Scripture and we go, oh, I'm smarter than God. I mean, he thinks he knows what he's doing, but really, he doesn't understand our culture in America today. So we do things a little differently than the one who spoke the words and called all of the the rules and the laws of physics and DNA and science and planetary motion into existence and created mankind out of the word of his mouth and the ruah of his wisdom. Mankind, we're smarter than the creator. We'll do it our way. We'll put the foundation this way. It'll be just fine. No, it won't. When you build it that way, ruin will come. So brothers and sisters, Paul's message to the Corinthians and to the Americans is, do it the way I've told you. Lay brick on brick on brick the right way. And when you build it right, it survives the test of time. So what are some bad foundations? Well, there's a bunch of them we could look at. 
Some of them are, are uh, just public opinion, cultural norms, political posturing, which never made a bad decision, uh, family <laughs> traditions, social media research. Listen, what your 44 likes tell you does not represent reality. It represents 44 people who have created an online image of themselves who are offering opinion, either because they just want something to say or they're at work and they'd rather do anything than what they're getting paid for. Okay, social, social media, uh, a few websites you've discovered. Uh, that, that's just never acceptable. The web is not where you find all truth. You need to research a little better, please. Uh, proof texting. Now, proof texting starts to get into the, into the danger zone here. You know what proof texting is? Okay, proof texting happens like this. You think something's probably true. You're You're just sure this is the truth. And so you go to the Bible to find a verse that proves what you have to say. Have you ever heard of that happening? People do it. Preachers do it all the time. Another thing about proof texting is you take something completely out of its context. It's all by itself, and you say, oh, I read this first, and this is what it means. People open the Bible sometimes. You ever see them do this? And this isn't a Bible. It's my notebook. But people will say, I just asked the Lord to give me a vision. I opened the book, and I pointed, and I looked at it. And it said, Judas hanged himself from a tree. (laughs) And suddenly, you're not going to be faithful anymore, are you? Right? That silliness is in mature behavior. Mature behavior is to read the verse in its context, to read the passage in its context, to understand who that book, who that was written to, when it was written, what was the thing meaning at the time. We understand what's the timeless message of our Lord, His words through human accent, right? That's inspiration. What is it saying there? Once you understand that completely, you can pull it over now and place it in your American cultural context because we understand that what was is and that truth is not uh, a subject to time. Truth is timeless. And what's true isn't new. And if it's new, it probably isn't true. And we go back and find that truth and we make application today. You know what that demands of you? It demands effort. Do most people love effort today? No. Most people like microwave Christianity. They like easy Christianity, feel-good Christianity, inspirational words. And so what they want to do is they just want to go find something that's easy. I can take it real quick and run. It's, it's, it's McDonald Christianity. Folks, that is not sufficient. That is child food. And what we need to be is grown up in the way that we approach the Scripture. So as we look to the Scripture, it's going to demand that you understand and grow in it like adults. What was Paul's frustration? I would love to feed you grown-up food, but I have to give you milk since you're not ready for it. I want to treat you like adults, but you're being children. You can live on milk, but you'll never really develop into a truly healthy and well-adjusted adult if milk is all you live on, right? Now, as we approach how this plays out in American life today, in our world, just like it did in Corinth, there's a few things we need to admit. Most of us have acted on bad advice at some point in time, right? It was funny. I said that before, and I started watching some people kind of go, but can you imagine back in a time, or remember you acted on bad advice, most of us have believed a lie at some point, huh? I thought that was true. I believe that person found out it was a lie. But all of us have been influenced. And we have to be constantly aware of as Christians, particularly in a media age, what are the things that are influencing you? Are you aware of them? 
Are you paying attention enough to see what's influencing the way you think, the way you value, and what you do? For some of us, that has been chemicals. I was addicted to nicotine for years. Anybody else got caught by tobacco? And it just seemed like a small thing, but you started to realize you're planning your day around breaks. You're planning your budget around facilitating your habit. And if you're not supposed to be and you're lying about it, then you're trying to figure out how you can sneak around and continue to do that. But I wonder how many other people's, don't raise hands, okay. How many of you would say that maybe it was alcohol or a prescription drug or pornography or an affair or, or, or a gambling habit or another thing that made its way into your life that was determining how you made your decisions? It started small, but now it influences you and it eventually controls you and you built your life upon a foundation that was a foolish one, and eventually it all collapsed. You see, that's the lure of Satan's lies. He would love to build your life and your values and your decisions on things that will collapse, because nothing makes your adversary happier than seeing you destitute and ruined and embarrassed and belittled. It makes him happy. But you know what the Lord wants for you? The Lord really does want you to be happy in the sense that your happiness and your meaning and your purpose is found in Christ. So whatever happens around you, the storms of life, you'll stand strong. And that's what he's talking about in that test. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians and specifically look at something here. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, okay? Obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now remember, we're not talking about hell. We're talking about a test. Fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's works. If anyone's work is built to survive, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, though only as through fire. Have, have you ever seen the pictures on the news where um, somebody's house is burned down and, and they're, they're out there on the curb and the fire trucks are there and they've put the fire out and the family's kind of standing there. It's like a Red Cross commercial a lot of times. And, and you're just standing there with nothing but the clothes on your back and, and maybe just the family holding hands utterly devastated because everything they have has been destroyed. Do you have that image? Have you seen these, these pictures, images? The California fires of late made that uh, kind of easy for us. Um, uh, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, when they went through uh, the Gulf states, the incredible, unimaginable devastation that just wiped things clean, left a lot of families with nothing, completely destitute. They were alive, but that was it. Everything else was lost, Right. I know you were down there in the middle of that. My teams were down there doing disaster relief. And, and I got to tell you, it's an incredibly humbling thing to think that, that everything that you have is wrapped up in your house and that's secure to see that, that water could come through and wipe it clean as like the city of Bay St. Louis, which ceased to exist. There was nothing there. And I remember our team pulled in, I think it was eight days after uh, Rita, uh, and <laughs> Bay St. Louis did not exist it was gone. And there were foundations sometimes, but other places there was just dirt and mud and stink and nothing was there. There used to be a town. It's gone. But you see, that's what happens in our lives in a sense, right? When you've built your life, you've built your house on foolish ground. You, you, you've built everything on things that can't support you. It's falseness. It's not truth. And when the storms come, it wipes it away and you'll survive but everything else is gone. So Paul's illustration was more specifically like this. The foundation was solid. It was laid by Jesus Christ in the gospel. 
You've built your life on that, but your behavior now that you built on that foundation with was faulty. Some of it was good, but much of it was selfish and built on cultural ideologies and values. And a day is going to come where you're going to stand before the Lord your God and you're going to be reproved. You're going to be tested, almost like a fire, Paul is saying. And all the bad, the, the hay, the trouble, the, the straw, that's going to burn up and be gone. What's going to be left behind, just like that refiner's fire, right, are going to be the stone, the gold, the precious stones, illustratively, that survived the test of fire. And when you stand before Jesus Christ on that day of judgment, what in your life is going to survive that test? Because for a lot of people, there was a foundation. They believed in Jesus. They trusted in Jesus as Savior. But they never really became mature as Christians. And they built their Christian life on the culture. And they're going to stand before God one day and go, Oh, I, I believe in you. I know you're real. And Jesus says, I, I, yes, child, we have a relationship, but you never built on it. You stayed a child. You stayed a baby your whole life. You never grew. You never did things that have, you ready, kingdom value that stand that test of time. And how disappointing so many people are going to find the end of their lives to be. So that's what 1 Corinthians is talking about. So as we read that passage, this is what we're seeing and this is what's in view. So um, as we go back to just kind of looking at a, at a passage of, or looking at our passage today, what are the two things we really wanted to walk away with? Number one, building up our faith on the master builder's foundation. Make sure you build on the right one. And secondly, human wisdom leads to foolish and unbiblical constructs, which do not pass the test of fire. Culture never, never fully lives up to Scripture's demand culture always shifts. We like to explain it like this. The scripture in God's way, we refer to as a narrow way, right? Jesus referred to as a narrow, but that, that culture is a winding path. So imagine a straight line here and culture weaves back and forth along that line, sometimes to the more conservative, sometimes more often to the liberal side. And we weave in and out of scripture and we keep some things and we build on the equity of Christianity with things like um, taking care of the poor and rights for all people and, and, and not abusing and not lying and honesty. We build on these constructs that are Christian, but then we weave off into culture and do whatever we want. Weave over here and do whatever we want. Weave over here. And we're, we're taught peace and standard, but we sure do love war. Uh, and, and we're taught um, morality and doing what is right, but we sure do love our sensuality. And, and so we weave back. But, cult, but the word always stays straight. And that which is on the foundation survives, that which to the side falls away. That's what I really want you to hear Paul saying today. But what I want to do is take a little bit of a tangential rabbit trail for just a second because I recognize we live in, a, um, in, in an area that is largely um, populated by or settled by people who came from the Catholic tradition. And so the Catholic vein or tradition of the Christian faith has some things in it that are wildly inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture. Because in Catholic dogma, the Scripture and the papacy or the human tradition are equal. And because the papacy and the tradition of the doctors and the saints uh, created the Bible in their world, they, they elevate that above Scripture. So they can contradict and disagree with Scripture all they like or redefine Scripture because they believe that this is above Scripture. You guys tracking with me so far? Now, if you come from the Catholic tradition, uh, follow along with what I'm saying. I'm not attacking. I'm just going to point out something that went greatly awry that needs to be, should be, and was corrected in the Reformation. 
right around um, 1080, the theory or the, the practice, the dogma of purgatory was generated. And the idea is that it's a place of temporal punishment for those who are not entirely free of venial sin. And therefore, the flames of this purgatory will purify people so that they are then fully sanctified and able to go into heaven. In other words, they, they, their concept is that somehow the fire will burn away the dross and they will be purified good enough to go into heaven. Now, this is nowhere taught in the scriptures. But if you take a few verses and you massage them enough, you can get there. Do you know what one of those verses is that we read today? It, it's 1 Cor 3.10 where he talks about how the, the master builder, or this 1 Corinthians 3 passage, where he says, uh, according to God's grace and the master builders and the building on the foundation, and it says, if anyone builds on the foundation, it goes through this, then we get to this verse right here, and it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the, the Catholic tradition said that you'll be saved, but only through the fires of purgatory. And they built an entire dogma and doctrine on this verse. Well, how do you do that? Well, you take some human wisdom and you inject it into the Bible and you proof text. The human t tradition was actually a very, very old one. And it was the idea of praying for or praying to the dead. Many religious and pagan practices across history have done this, and many continue to do that to this day. And they, their idea is that somehow the living can pray for the dead and earn credit for the dead so that the dead can be moved into a state of better grace. We even have Mormons teaching this in American culture today, that somehow in their religion they can pray for the dead, give money for the dead, marry the dead, and bring life and salvation to the dead. This is utterly inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, but it's the wisdom of man that's been built upon a faulty foundation. The foundation stinks. Scripture teaches that your salvation is through Jesus Christ and your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and that a day is going to come when each one of us is going to give an account for ourselves and our life and what we've done. And as 1 Corinthians is teaching, you're going to be tested as through fire, just like a fire test. The things that matter will retain, those that do not will fade away and be gone forever. There is no purgatory in which you enter. You cannot pay or pray people out of an afterlife state. When you die to life on earth, you are present with the Lord and you're going to face your reward or your condemnation based upon your decisions made on life on earth or in life on earth. That's the truth. The beauty of it is for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The beauty of it is if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. And that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life in the presence of God the Father. And among he, Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brethren, will gather the, the masses to himself who have accepted him. And that's the beautiful message of the gospel. Yay! But if you build your life and your decisions based on a faulty foundation that there's a second chance after death, friends, I'm here to tell you, you're going to be terribly disappointed because it's not the case. Scripture never teaches that. That's dogma from human wisdom. You understand me? This is a very important thing that we make sure we keep in the front of our minds. So as we're closing today, um, what exactly uh, do we need to learn from this? First of all, let's remember that what was is. The truth of the ancient teachings of Scripture is true today. What was true when Paul wrote it is true today. 
And we need to get back to learning what Jesus and what his apostles were teaching and making that a part of who we are. So what would the message of 1 Corinthians 3 be to Americans today? I kind of transliterate and offer you the following. Be careful to American Christians. Be careful not to equate your own desires and cultural convictions to Scripture. Search the Scriptures for God's truth to build your faith upon. In the very end, that which is built on culture's values will collapse, while that which is built on God's values will flourish.